If you've been with us over the last, I don't know, two years, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we've scheduled it out two years ago to end on chapter 28, 1 through 10, right on the resurrection today. So it's just amazing planning we have. No, I'm just kidding. We, 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 we only on, in, in, when we got to chapter 26 figured it out. So, uh, but we will be in Matthew chapter 28 today, uh, verses 1 through 10. So if you have a Bible you can open up to Matthew 28, 1 through 10. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. Grab one of those. It's the first book in the New Testament. <clears throat> Table of contents, use that. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Um, it won't help you. I'm on page 1006 in my Bible. Probably won't help you at all. Um, but I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the celebration that we can have where we get to celebrate, really, every Sunday, but especially this Sunday, that though... Friday was good because you gave your life, but Sunday is great because you defeated Satan, sin, and death, and now you've come back to life, thereby giving us life eternal, securing for us forever forgiveness of sin, defeat over death and sin in our own life, and life with you eternal. I pray, God, that as we look at your word this morning, that you would strengthen the saints that are here as well as for anyone that doesn't know you, anyone that would call themselves perhaps not a believer, that you would draw them to yourself this morning. We pray it's in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Spurgeon says, All of Christ's weary pilgrimage from Bethlehem's manger to Calvary's cross is in our eyes paved with glory. So as he went to the, uh, the, the baby trough and was born into it as he was born in the manger. All of that was paved with glory. And as we've gone all the way to Calvary's cross, all of it is displaying for us the glory of Jesus. One of the chief arguments against the resurrection is its truthfulness. People that are not believers, when they hear a man came back to life, they just say, that sounds, that sounds ridiculous. Um, but today, what I want to do is show that, first of all, we all believe in absolute truth. There's no one here that doesn't. In this postmodern society, I mean, a lot of times we may not think that it's true, and that, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. But we all believe in it. Um, if you were to go to the bank and say, I want to withdraw you know, $10,000. Well, maybe you don't have that, but it, let's say you did. I want to withdraw $10,000. And the teller said, well, I don't feel like that's true today. So uh, I can't give that to you. You would demand it, and you would... You would, in that moment, no question, believe in absolute truth. And that if they say, well, I just don't believe that's true today, you can't say, well, I guess I have to defer to that because what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me, so I guess I don't get my money. And I just, we would not, none of us would do that. And we all believe in absolute truth. So that's one of the things I want to talk about today. But also, uh, as we talk about absolute truth, I want to, hopefully as we're looking at the arguments that are going to come forward from Matthew 28, 1 through 10, we'll see that there is great truthfulness or veracity or great reason to believe in the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection. And it has, it, when, when we see that, great implications for people that aren't Christians and people that are. No one in this room can just hear the veracity or the truthfulness of the cross and say, that's a good message for y'all. Every, every one of us has to be confronted with it. And every one of us has to think through the great implications for what it means for us personally, personally. The, uh, the story of the resurrection is meant to reach down to the strings of our heart and do something. God has created us all as emotional beings. 
We are created as people that need to hear things and think through things intellectually and understand the veracity or the truthfulness with our mind. But the resurrection is not just to go into there, do its work, and kind of export itself. Instead, it's meant to, for every person, reach down into the strings of our heart and cause or evoke emotional thoughts and changes as well. And that's supposed to express itself outwardly. As we understand it mentally, it's supposed to do something to us, even emotionally. Now, I'm not arguing for an emotional experience alone. However, I'm saying that the truthfulness should cause implications for unbelievers and believers, for people that aren't Christians and are, some kind of mental thoughts as well as emotional um, expressions. So as we're looking at this, I want you to have all that in the back of your mind of what the Lord would be leading you to respond with today. Now, as I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Um, and, and it's normal fashion as we've been going through the book of Matthew. We've been going it through it verse by verse and kind of unpacking the truths in it. Uh, and so today, the, the title of the sermon is Resurrection Sunday's Message. There's, there's a point, there's a, there's a message behind this particular uh, set of verses that God wants us to hear. And so that, that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you look here at verse 28, verse 1 is where we'll start. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, the Jews had very strict rules on what was allowed during the Sabbath day. And one of those was not handling a dead body. And so they, they took the body off the cross. They pulled, someone had to pull the nails out of the hand. Likely it was Joseph and the Marys and the other gals uh, cleaning up Jesus' body late on Friday night, getting it in there. And on Saturday, there's only a certain amount that you can go walk. There's, there's no touching dead bodies. And so you can just feel the anticipatory nature growing in these women as, okay, we're observing the Sabbath like good Jews would. And then it says after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day on Sunday, which is why we've always celebrate corporately um, our gatherings on Sunday morning, celebrating this particular day where they saw the grave open. And so Mary, it says here, at the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Mark also adds uh, a lady named Salome was there, and Luke adds Joanna. So for all you pregnant ladies, there's a lady named Salome. That name's open in Remedy Church as well. I've been trying to do this every week, make sure we can see some of these great biblical names like Salome is there. So they're all going, all these women are going. And we're going to talk about this as we get down, but it's quite interesting that the first witnesses are women. Quite interesting. Um, We'll talk about why, but it's just awesome that God chooses women to be the first witnesses. I think it's incredible. It's just so like God to choose for his first witnesses to be not who we think. Not who we think. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They went there to go see the tomb. The tomb was purchased by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. It was a couple things about it. Number one, it was a very costly tomb. It was known as a sepulcher, which is um, a, a, a stone or a monument that's hewn into kind of a, a big rock face, and it becomes like a cave kind of monument. And so Joseph of Arimathea petitioned to Pilate to get the body off the cross early, late Friday night and put it in there, and they, they wrapped it up in there, and they put it in there. So they went to uh, the sepulcher, I think is how you pronounce it. So the first thing is it was very, very costly. It's very costly. It was, it was going to be a family one. But even more uh, interesting is this, and I think we all can realize this. And hopefully this, this should get the emotional pulses, at least of believers, starting to get a little bit like, okay, that's awesome. Not only was it costly, it was just borrowed. It was just borrowed. I'm just going to use this for a couple days. Don't need any use of it for the rest. You, you can actually have it back 
Your family can keep it. I'm just going to use it for a couple days. That is extraordinary. That Jesus, I just, just for a couple days. After that, I, I don't need it anymore. So the borrowed tomb. And so here we see, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, this is another one. So we had, a, we had an earthquake as Christ was dying. And then we have another earthquake in this particular Sunday morning. And it says, for, the for is creating an argument or because. So it was an earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, I want to make sure we understand the rolling back of the stone and what's going on. Jesus was not in the tomb kind of pacing around, you know, like, I wonder if God's going to open up this tomb or not, like texting you, like, God, when's the thing coming? When's, you know, when's Michael or whoever the angel's coming, just sitting here trapped by this rock? Jesus isn't trapped by the rock at all. So we know in John 20, I think it's verse 19, uh, something like that, where he's just walking through walls, right? So it's not like the grave itself was holding him in. The grave was moved or the grave was open not to let Jesus out. Likely he was already out. Instead, it was open to let the first witnesses in to see what's going on. Let the women first, the, the, the great first witnesses, uh, Mary and the Marys, and to come and see what's going on. And so Jesus, um, the, the angel of the Lord comes down, rolls it back, and the stone, and he sat on it. He descended. And so the first thing we need to think about when the angel comes, I know in our, in our contemporary text, uh, context, when we think about angels, we just think fluffy and, you know, and shoot arrows and give you the love bug and, and, and clouds. And there's no occasion where people are come face to face with angels and they're just like, oh, you look so cuddly and pretty. You know, that's not happened. In every instance, when we see angels, there's always some kind of follow-up by the angel very soon. Don't, don't be afraid. So that means he, if they're saying that, the people, um, I heard one commentator say, and he said, excuse me, it was actually a sermon, he goes, are peeing their pants. Like, they're getting nervous. Whenever an angel comes, it's scaring them. It's, it's a big deal, and it's always a fearful thing. So we need to erase the idea that angels are just, you know, whatever, whatever. We're going to see here that the angels that come to these particular guards cause them great fear, cause them great fear. And I think the contrast is just amazing. Uh, so he, he comes down, he rolls back the stone, and then <laughs> he... Uh, he sits on it. So first we have the rolling back of the stone. We have this rolling back, moving out of the way. The rolling back or the empty tomb is not for Christ to be able to let out. Instead, for the first witnesses to come in. And what's the point of them to be able to witness and see it? It's for them to be able to see there has now been, without question, a full acquittal. Believers in Jesus have received a full acquittal. Spurgeon says that great stone seemed to represent uh, the sin of all of Christ's people, which shut them in prison. It can never be laid over the mouth of the sepulcher, which is the grave cut in the rock face of any child of God now. So the open tomb screams to you who are believers right now, complete acquittal. For those of you that aren't believers, who, who, who haven't trusted in Christ, the open grave is screaming to you, you can receive full acquittal. Complete forgiveness of sins with, with no consequences, with no, well, you still have to serve the sentence because Jesus has served the sentence completely for you. There's a great exchange, which we'll get to. But then the interesting thing is, it says that um, the angel just decided to sit down on the rock. That, that, that's interesting. I was reading that. I think that's just kind of weird. He just sits there. Boom. And, and some commentators were saying this is to highlight or to show Christ's um, triumph over everything that has happened. 
I really like Spurgeon's take on why he sat down. He said, when the angel had rolled back the stone from the door and he sat upon it, he sat upon it as to defy earth and hell ever to roll it back again. I love that. I just love that. So the angel is there sitting there. Now we're kind of setting the scene. He comes there, rolls it back, has a seat. He's just chilling, maybe. I don't know what he's doing, but it's fearful. And so we've got some other people, some other players that are going to be there. We're going to see the soldiers or the guards, and we're going to have the women. Now, I want you to imagine the contrast of the scene that's going on here. First of all, we're going to see uh, his appearance, and then we're going to see what's going on. Just remember, this is, this is an interesting picture. Now, likely, which we pointed out at Good Friday, if you're here, these are not pilots, Soldiers, these are likely the chief priests and elders' soldiers or or, or, or chief or police. You can see that because it says in verse 65 in the previous chapter 27, 65, that the chief priests are saying, hey, you know, Pilate, he said he was going to come back from three days. I don't want any of the people to go in there. His people are going there and take his body and say that he rose. And so Pilate looks at him in verse 65 and says, you have a guard of soldiers. You go make it secure as you can. I'm not letting my soldiers go guard this door my soldiers, this guy's dead. My soldiers aren't just going to guard dead people. We guard people we want to either kill or if they're dead, we're done with them. And so you can take your people. So the chief priests, the, the, likely the, the, the soldiers that are the chief priest police, if you will, are the ones guarding it. And they, uh, they get a little fearful. So here he is sitting on, on the stone. His appearance was like lightning and clothing as white as snow. And here's the scene. And for fear of him, Notice, when, when angels show up, there's always fear. Here's the guards. <laughs> the guards trembled and became like dead men. They became like dead men. Now, I don't know uh, what exactly this means. If they're just fainted or they're, I don't think they are dead. I don't think they're like taking a dirt nap. I think that they're just fainted and kind of gone. But it, the Bible says they became like dead men. There's actually a little play in words right there. Um, in the Greek, it's pretty interesting because we have the, the earthquake. The, that is just seismos in the Greek, seismos. And then you have the guards trembling in verse 4. And there's a, they're taking that same root, that size, and estesne is the Greek word. And so basically what they're trying to say, the earthquake came and they were quaking, like quaking in their shoes. It's, so M- Matthew's getting a little creative there. Uh, the quake came and made them quake and tremble and fall down like dead men. And so there they are, falling down like dead men. And then you have the women that come up. And, and they're the first witnesses. And it says in verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. So here, here we are, setting the picture. The interesting contrast, um, it may not be intentional by Matthew. I'll, I'll go ahead and say that. But I still love it all, all the more. You've got men, like burly soldier guard men, laying on the ground like dead men, like little pansies. And then you've got the women, the commoners. By all measure, we, we don't think they're, you know, they're not like, Big, strong, like in the Olympics doing, you know, whatever those heavy lifting weight things are. And I don't know what they are. I don't really watch the Olympics. But you got these women that are commoners and they're standing there. Here's the big burly soldiers laying on the ground. And here are the women standing there. The first, you know, all right. They're a little fearful. We know that they're fearful because he looks at them. He says, do not be afraid. So we know there's some level of fear. But I just think it's awesome that the women are standing there like being the first witnesses while the, the guards are just laying on the ground fearful. And, oh, let's play dead. Is that like he's not there? I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so here's the scene, and here we have it. So then we have, um, finally, the angel speaks. Finally, in verse 5, the angel sitting there on the stone speaks to the women, and he tells them something. What does he say? And now we're getting to 
Sunday's resurrection message. What are some of the things we need to know? He looks at him, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. All right, so what's the point here? What, what are we here for? What's the whole deal of being here on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday? The first one is this. Sunday's first resurrection, the first thing that we need to know is Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified. Don't miss that past tense. Don't miss the past tense because there's a, there's a play on it for present. But Jesus was crucified. This is the gospel. This is the great exchange, and don't miss this, that Jesus initiated. Every bit of the crucifixion was completely initiated and sought after and sovereignly ordained and made happen to be by Jesus. Every moment of it. Jesus was never, ever, at really, ultimately, a victim of, the, of this whole crucifixion whatsoever. He was the one calling the shots. He decides when he's arrested. He decides when he goes to the cross. He decides when he's nailed. He even decides why he's on the cross when he dies. He, all right, I'm, I'm going to die now. I'm coming home, Father. He decides, and then he rests his head and goes, and goes to heaven. He decides everything. Jesus is crucified. Jesus trades his life for our death, and we trade our death for Jesus's life. The great exchange happens. And all who are believers now receive life eternal because Jesus received our death. He received our crucifixion. Jesus was crucified. So he looks at him and he tells him, I know you're here because Jesus was crucified. That's the first thing. Now, if we keep going, it says this. He's not here. Stop. You can just imagine the ladies. He's not here. They're not ready for the second half of the sentence. All they know is they've come up here. Grown men are laying on the ground, sucking their thumbs. And there's the big bright angel, which is not an every common day occurrence, sitting on there, and they're scared and they're fearful. And the only reason they came, if we see in verse 1, remember the anticipation was verse 1. Now the Sabbath toward the dawn of the day, Mary and Magdalene and other women went to see the tomb. We need to get back. We, we love this man so much. Everything that he did was so moving, and his death has just destroyed us. And so we want to come see him. We want to make sure he's okay. We want to make sure there wasn't a grave robber. We want to make sure nothing happened. And they come and the doors open and all of a sudden things aren't right. And they see an angel and they go up and they look in and it's gone. And he says, he's not here. And everything kind of freaks out in him. What? Where is he? That's not what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to take care of him. We're supposed to make sure everything's finished. We had to rush Friday night. We couldn't do anything Saturday. Where is he? Well, the next four words change everything. Everything. The next four words not only change everything for the Marys, the next four words change everything for every person in this room. You can't hear these next four words and just say, okay, that's good for you, but that's not truth for me. These next four words change everything about your life, my life, everyone's life. These next four words are the things that make the calendar be split from B.C. and A.D., and everything happens. This is the most important man in the world ever, and these four words are why. He is not here, and here it is. For he is risen. For he has risen. So we have Christ being raised. The resurrection is absolutely essential. It's essential that he came back to life. If he did not come back to life, then ultimately he didn't atone for our sins. If he didn't come back to life, he was a liar. Because he said he was going to come back to life at least three separate times. And if he's a liar, he sinned. And if he sinned, then we, he wasn't a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. And if he wasn't the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins, then your sins, are, your sins are not atoned for. 
So it's essential that he came back to life because he said he would. And it's also essential that he came back to life to show that he's defeated Satan, sin, and death. This was not a ghostly spirit kind of resurrected running around. Instead, this wasn't like a haunting, like he's just hopping around and floating through doors as some kind of ghost. This resurrection is a bodily resurrection. He rose again bodily, was still flesh, and is 100% human in heaven right now. Boyce says the only resurrection that counts for anything is a resurrection of the body. J.D. Greer also says Christ is risen. If this didn't happen, then everything we believe is based on a lie. But if it did, then nothing in life can stay the same. Nothing in your life can stay the same because of those four words. Christ is risen. So the second point of the message, in contrast with that first, when we hear Jesus was crucified, past tense, the, the second one is Christ has risen, present tense. Christ has risen. And don't miss this. He is not here for he is risen as he said. He told him all along is going to happen. Matthew records it at least three separate times. Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, and 23, Matthew 20, 18, and 19, and even predicted his death in 26, 1, and 2, just not the resurrection. And so, as he said, and that's why Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1, in accordance with the scriptures and as Christ said. This was predicted all along that he was coming back. They just couldn't wrap their mind around it. I mean, think about it. You have no ability to say to your spouse or your loved ones, I'm going to die, and it's going to be in a couple days, and after that, a couple days later, I'll be back alive again. It, it's just not something they could conceive of. Christ has risen, as he said. So the first thing is Christ is crucified. The second thing is Christ is risen. Th- this is what's known as the gospel. The good news. The message that changes everyone's life. That if we believe, as it says in Romans 10, 9, if we believe with our heart that Christ has been raised from the dead, then we are, then we are justified. It's with the mouth that we confess and with the heart that we are forgiven and justified. So when we confess that, we confess our sin, trust in Christ, then that great exchange happens. The debt that he was, that we're deserved was given to him and all of his life and all of his perfections given to us. That's the simple message of the gospel for anyone here. Now, we'll talk about some of the resurrection and how um, its truthfulness is here, but I want you to see the rest of this Resurrection Sunday message. So here we have, for he's not risen as he said. Now, from this point on as we're going, we're going to be looking at the narrative. And as we're looking at the narrative, these are going to be some things that the angel is telling the Marys and Salome and Joanna to go do. However, there's great application for us for the rest of it. Great application for those that are in Christ and for those that aren't. What are we supposed to do with that? Here it is. Look at this. Verse 6, second half. He says, come see the place where he lay. This is a great invitation by the angel to the Marys at the particular time, who don't miss it, were likely believers in Jesus. But so it's, it's an invitation for all who are Christians to come and peek into the sepulcher, if you will, and see, see the place where Jesus lay. But undoubtedly, this is also an invitation for everyone that's not a Christian. You want to know, is this resurrection real? Come and see the place where he lay. Come and see. Come and see that Jesus came down. He literally condescended. He lowered himself by becoming human to be with us. Come see that. Come and see that Jesus experienced 
all the horror of all of our sin put on him, on him for us. Come and see that outside of Jesus, without him, we too will die. We will also all be separated from God. Come and see that in the sepulcher. Come and see that Jesus is not in the grave anymore. He's not there. And it's ridiculous to think any other reason, any other thing besides he's been raised from the dead. That If he just kind of almost died but didn't and then got up and snuck out, he was beaten so badly he would never have been able to move himself. The, the guards were in front. It was their job to hide. So it's not like they went in there and snuck him out. There's no possible way that he could get in there. It, it, there was no wrong, oh, they just went to the wrong one. This is impossible. And they would have never, ever just gone to the wrong one because Joseph of Arimathea is the one that bought it. They knew exactly where it was. The only logical reason, the, the only truthfulness that, that bubbles up, the only thing that makes any sense is if this man has been saying his whole life that he was going to be resurrected, for a thousands of years it was prophesied that a man was going to come and do it, and he says he's going to do it several times, and then he dies. Without question he dies, and he's put into a grave. Soldiers are put there, and the next day an angel falls down and blows open the door so that everybody can see that he's not there. It's an invitation for all skeptics and all believers to come and see there is the empty grave. He's not there. The only logical thing is it was a borrowed tomb. And this man's back to life now. Our Savior is alive. So come and see that you also, as Christ is risen, you also will rise forever and join Jesus in heaven. After we see all that, there's more. So the third thing is, the third point of Sunday's resurrection message is come and see the place where he lay. One of the greatest invitations that God's ever extended to man. However, when we see that, we are not just to intellectually understand it and that's it. Spurgeon says, however, in this world, we cannot afford to spend all of our time in contemplation, however heavenly it may be. The resurrection isn't just to make us go into a state of comatose contemplation and just sit there for the rest of our lives. Come and see. Everyone has to start with that. But it's not the eat, be all, end all. It's not the stop. Let's look what happens. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell. Then go quickly and tell. The fourth thing, the fourth thing, Mess point of Resurrection Sunday. The fourth thing that you need to know is this. After you've come and see, and after you've intellectually dealt with the evidence, and after you've seen that this is the only truthful thing that can be, is that Christ is risen from the de- grave, and that the great invitation is being extended to see is also the great invitation to believe and trust and be forever forgiven. This is not a message that we just hold to ourselves. When he says, don't be afraid, I think on the surface, he's talking to them saying, I know you're scared of seeing an angel, and this is a big deal, and it should scare you. But I think even deeper, the don't be afraid is an application for us, calling us all to boldness. Don't be afraid to be bold. Don't be afraid to do this fourth thing. Go tell that the grave is empty. It's a great call for boldness for all of us. Go tell. Tell what? It says here in verse 7, then go tell his disciples, what? That he is risen from the dead. That's our message. It's, it's, it's the only message we have. Go tell them that Christ is risen from the dead. This is absolute great news. Now, the fifth thing, we could just stop there. Jesus was crucified. 
Therefore, since he was crucified, um, I already forgot the second one. Since he was crucified, he's risen. How can I forget the resurrection? It is Easter fud. Come on. Um, so then after that, um, come see the place where he lay, the great invitation. After that, now you should go and tell. That's it. Okay. Let's, 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 ha- let's sing, Jordan. Bring out the guitars. But there's one other thing that I think is like almost um, essential for us as believers to, to know. If we're going to have that boldness that he's calling us to, without this last little piece... I think that we would despair unto no end. So he tells us, go tell him that the grave is empty. That's what the fourth thing. And then after that, there's something awesome. Now, it's in the text, and I know it's the narrative, but I think it's absolutely awesome. Look at this. Go tell him that he's risen from the dead. And behold, here it is. He is going before you. Now, I know it says to Galilee, and we're going to talk about the implications of that in my conclusion. But the idea... (laughs) And it's still true. Go tell them. There's people out there that don't know. Come and see. Invite them to come see that it's empty. And after that, invite them to be the ones that go quickly to go tell. And don't miss this. And as you're going boldly, conjuring up Holy Spirit wrought boldness to go tell them, know this, Jesus is going before you. There's not, a, there's not an inch of this earth that God's not already there working. And when you go, you can know Jesus has already gone before you. This is the most encouraging thing to a lackluster, scared evangelist like me who is so timid when it's time. I know that the Holy Spirit's leading to tell somebody about Jesus. What are they going to think? I need to have boldness. Oh, yeah. You know, what am, I, what am I doing? He's going before me. He's working in people's hearts before I've ever met him. This is such an encouraging message. So what are they going to do? Are they going to be obedient or are they going to just be lazy? What are we going to do? This is a strange mixture. Watch this. He tells them to go quickly for Christ is going before them to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I've told you. And so what do they do this? What do they do? Here it is. So they departed quickly. Now notice um, he told them to go quickly in verse 7 and they departed quickly. I love simple obedience. I I love just precious, simple obedience. Do this and do it fast, okay? I'm going to do it. I'm not just going to halfway do it. I'm going to do it fast like you told me. I love precious, simple obedience that the first witnesses, these women saw and did. And then interesting, here's this great mixture. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. That's, that's a strange little mixture of things as you look at it. Um, Spurgeon says, a holy fear mingled with great joy is one of the sweetest compounds we can bring to God's altar. Now, he's, he's um, playing on that they came with spices. They came with spices to do more to the body. And when they came with these spices to do more of the body, which they didn't need anymore, they also left with a compound. They left with a mixture. It didn't have anything to do with something tangible. It was all intangible. And the tangible compound that they left with was holy fear mingled with great joy. A holy fear mingled with great joy is one of the sweetest compounds we can bring to God's altar. Such were the spices these women took with them from Christ's grave. And look what it says. And this is, I think, so illustrative of how our life should be when it comes to telling people about Christ. Look what it says. Quickly they ran from the tomb with fear and great joy. We should definitely have both of these things. And ran to tell his disciples. What if, and then I'm not saying, I'm not like literally saying, so after the service, I want you to literally run out to your cars. And, but what if that was the posture of our hearts? I've used this illustration before, but it's just so timely. Have you ever been around children 
like young children, whenever it's time to do something, it doesn't matter what it is, they're running. Like, it doesn't matter. We got to get the mail. Okay, we got to get the mail. Let's take off. Like, okay, we're just getting the mail. You know, it doesn't matter. Wouldn't it be interesting, like, if as excited as children are about things, and they just run everywhere. Like, it doesn't matter. Hey, there's a balloon. Balloon, run! Like, it's, it's almost like a little lap dog. What if adults, what if, <laughs> what if adults, when they're just as excited as children, also ran everywhere? Like, dinner! We run inside Olive Garden. Like, people would look at us like, what, what's going on here? This guy runs there. Wouldn't it be interesting if adults ran all the time just like children? All right. So what's the greatest message we have is the gospel. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not literally asking you to run everywhere with great boldness to share. Like, hey, there's a non-Christian. Both of you just like mow this guy over trying to get there. But I'm saying, what if the posture of our hearts was to be quick and run? What if the posture of our hearts was to move quickly with boldness? With fear, understandable. I mean, evangelism is always a fearful thing. But with great joy that Christ is going before us and he might save this sinner just seems like, of course I want to do that with the posture of my heart being something I do quickly rather than putting it off. There doesn't seem to be a category here in the Bible for having the message and being kind of ho-hum and apathetic about it. And well, I'm looking for a two-year strategy with this particular person that I'm going to implement soon after I get to the summer so busy. I mean, summer's just so busy. And fall, well, the fall, well, it's Christmas. But once there's this little window that I'm going to have about six months. I'm going to implement my strategy there so I'm not really doing the fast track. Well, I, I just don't see these categories of, of uh, slowness. It seems like the Bible is speaking to us saying that we should be bold and quick. So I think that after we hear this, the posture of our heart, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? If you're not a believer and we hear that there's a, an invitation into the grave, and that behind it is a, a boldness. Behind it is a running. Behind it is a quickness. If you're not a believer, maybe you need to quickly run forward into the grave and see and be transformed. But if you are a believer, maybe you need to run quickly, not forward, but forth to go and not come see, but then go tell. Maybe this needs to be the posture of your heart. Spurgeon, highlighting this need for quick obedience, says, Saints running in the way of obedience, running in the way of obedience, are likely always met by Jesus. I love that. We're going to meet Christ more often the faster we are to respond to his callings. So after that, we get to this great conclusion. And in this conclusion, we're going to, I think, have some more evidence for any skeptics, which is fine to be a skeptic, on the truthfulness of the resurrection. Since they ran with great joys to tell the disciples. I, I love the picture of these four women just taking off, like telling the disciples. They just run. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of John, after they go and tell the disciples, they're the first witnesses. The women are the first witnesses, which they're, they're, uh, their stories in this particular world don't carry an ounce of, of weight whatsoever. So they go tell the disciples. And after they tell the disciples, the first Peter and John, they both 
take off to the to the uh, grave to see it themselves. So they run, and so when it gets there, John, in the book of John, it's really funny, John's writing it, and he doesn't ever talk about himself, but he says, the other disciple, he beat Peter in the foot race, and he got there first. Like, ah, eh, I beat him. And so, and then they go through this whole thing. So we see the, the women running to them, and them running. It's like, there's this overall, we keep running out of great joy and fear about what Christ has done, that he's come back. Now, look at this. This is where Jesus is going to enter the scene, finally, finally. Verse Nine, they ran to tell the disciples, and behold. So we've, we've moved forward in the time. There's some things that have happened. They've gone and tell the disciples, disciples. They've all come back, and all of a sudden, they're, they're somewhere, and it says, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Greetings. He, he goes with a, a traditional greeting and, and says them, Greetings to them. Um, no doubt that had to scare them. And then it says, Watch this. As soon as he says greetings, this is what they did. And they came up, and took a hold, clasping his feet and worship. This is proskuneo. This is kneeling before, bowing down, getting down and worshiping. They literally worshiped him on the spot, came down and worshiped. They were speechless because of his presence, who he was, and they didn't have any words. Greetings is all he says. And they fall down at his feet, don't know what to do. All they knew is the grave's empty. And up until this point, we don't know where he is. And then he appears bodily resurrected, bodily different. Something, something about his presence there had to have been different in order for them to do this. Something had to be different in order for them to respond this particular way, falling down and worshiping him. I think that this was just actually instinctual. Now, don't miss this. If Jesus wasn't resurrected bodily and something was different, but he was still halfway beaten, the grabbing of his feet and ankles would have caused him great pain. But there's nothing that even shows that that's happening. Just another evidence that he didn't halfway almost die and then just exit the grave quietly. This man was dead and then he rose again. And the response of theirs just amplifies its truthfulness. There's something different about this man that made them, the only thing they could do is run up to him, fall down on his feet and just start worshiping him because he was alive. And he says, greetings. And they came up and took his feet and worshiped. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. The same thing that uh, the angel told him, Jesus reiterates, highlighting again that boldness has to be there. So a couple things about this resurrection body. Because he's walking around in a resurrected body. The women are taking hold of his feet. His body's different. The women... um, when they're looking at him, knew that something was different, something even more sweet that caused them to do this. They caused them to proskuneo, instinctually fall down and worship this resurrected Savior. And so, I'm just as we see that, and maybe this message is something you're hearing for the very first time, or you've heard it, all of a sudden it's penetrated your heart differently. Is there something new, something different, something more sweet then about this risen Christ that's Entering in your head, making you deal with the truthfulness of it, but then moving down to the heart and instinctually causing some kind of emotional response. Like these women, where you say, if that's true, believer or unbeliever, the only thing I can do then is deal with that and emotionally also, like these women, come forward and start bowing down and worshiping. Is there something about this as you hear it that's causing you to as well? 
He tells them, go and tell uh, my brothers to go to Galilee. Tells them to go to Galilee. Now, this is interesting. Over the entire book of Matthew, there's some themes that have permeated this entire book. It's written to people who are Jewish. One of them is this Galilean theme over and over. That's in the Gentile area. And so one of the great themes of the book of Matthew written to Jewish people is that, hey, people who are Jewish, not just you now, but Gentiles, the rest of the world, is being invited into this. Everybody is invited into this. But here's even more. This is where I think it gets more interesting. Galilee was also a despised area. And as he's a despised area, meet me at Galilee. That's where we're going to start this thing. And so he goes to a despised area to a despised people to first shed the light of the resurrection. And I think that that just shows us. No one in this room, no one in this room is too sinful or too despised to be saved. No one. There's not, you're not the special person that's outside of the reach of the forgiveness of God. Come and look at this empty grave. Believe that Jesus was crucified and that he is risen. And now trust in him and be forgiven forever. Every person that's not a Christian has to deal with that because it means eternity. Eternity is in the balance. You're forever. We're all created to be everlasting beings. If we don't deal with this truthfulness of the resurrection, then we will be cast out from God forever. But if we do believe and trust, we're forgiven of all of our sin and then they're going to live life eternal in heaven, not receiving punishment, but only receiving love and joy. And so he tells them, go, you who are Christians, and tell them, and there they're going to see me in Galilee. And they saw him in Galilee. Here's a great thing. We're going to see him in heaven one day. We also will see him. As we hear this, there's only two, two places for us. Only two. Believers, come and worship like the women and the disciples. Clasp a hold of our great Savior's ankles and give him all the glory he is due on this resurrection Sunday. People that aren't Christians. Hopefully you've heard some of the evidence and there's, there's much more. The fact that you're here is awesome. The fact that you're a skeptic is just fine. But you're being invited, the greatest invitation to come and peer into the sepulcher and see the body's not there. This man's alive. And because of it, you can believe and trust in him and be forgiven forever. That's your invitation. So we're gonna, we're gonna have a time of response. We're gonna have a few songs. We're gonna be able to breathe Spiritually, And as we're doing that, as we're hearing the information travel to our head, down to our heart, all evoking a real, not just emotional, but certainly part of emotional and truthful, all combining together that we're going to stand. And we can't sing Christ being raised to life in a ho-hum fashion. So if you are a believer, I just invite you to, like the disciples, with the posture of your heart, clasp clasp your Savior's ankles and worship. And for those that aren't believers, today, this morning, right now, you're not too despised, you're not too sinful, you're not too old, you're not too young. Today is the day for salvation.
I'll be right here. And you can figuratively come to the cross and repent and trust Christ. We have this time of response, a few songs. I invite you all to stand and come forward and sing. Um, If you want prayer, I'll be glad to pray with you. I'll pray and Jordan will lead us in a time of worship. Let's pray. God, this morning call sinners forward, both believers and unbelievers. Those who aren't, call them forward to repent and trust Christ. Those who are, call them forward to worship this great Savior. You're worthy of all of our worship and praise this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.